Hello and welcome to the National Leprechaun Museum's Talking Stories podcast. Your home for Irish folklore, mythology and all things storytelling. Yes, so we're back for episode 72. My name's Nisha and I'm joined today by Brendan. Hello. Welcome back, Brendan. Thank you very much, Nisha. I'm sure the listeners are going to be overjoyed that there's another voice on the podcast episode one. More voices. We're multiplying once more. Ah, breeding once again. Soon we shall take over the universe. So today we've got an interesting story coming up. It's kind of seasonal because I believe it takes place during May. It does Um, indeed. And last... Two months ago now, really, we had Bialchina held on the 1st of May, which is a very important time of year. What's so important about Bialchina, Nisha? Well, I'm glad you asked, Brendan, with no prompting whatsoever. <laughs> uh, so Bialchina was a really important festival. Obviously, we're all aware of that Samhain, as it were, as it's known now, Halloween is a really big, important celebration in the Irish tradition, as it was in many cultures throughout Europe that time of year, as opposed to specifically Samhain itself. But we know it was a time when the veil between our world and the fairy other world was blurred. So it was a time when there were supernatural creatures going out about at night. And the same thing happened on Bialchina. It was one of the most dangerous nights of the year for the fairies. But it was also a time of year when you had to mind your house, mind your household, because it wasn't just supernatural creatures that were doing magical attacks. Of course not. Of course not. It's Ireland. There had to be a bit of begrudgery and you had to be watching your neighbours to make sure they weren't trying to take your stuff as well. <laughs> Which I've always liked. Like At the end of the day, we're in an island surrounded by demonic horses that will drag you off into the night if you had too much to drink headless horsemen who'll take your soul to the afterlife banshees will scream to announce your death fairies who'll do god knows what to you and your kids and at the end of the day you still have to contend with your neighbours as well and the neighbours they could be the worst of all they're by far the worst I mean the other creatures were kind of our neighbours as well they're the good neighbours for a reason exactly Maybe they're the good neighbours because they're much preferred to our regular ones. Well, they're not the ones bothering you for cups of sugar all the time, are they? No. There's only one thing worse than a neighbour, and that's a housemate. Oh, God. Let's not even get into that part of it. Yeah, because you've you've still got housemates, don't you? I don't have housemates at the moment. Oh, lucky. I'm very, very lucky through a sheet of sweet nepotism. I've got my own flat for now. Yay. But oh. Don't say that too loudly. You'll have 50 million emails asking if you need any room <laughs> And the answer will be no, because flatmates can are be awful. Flatmates. I think like what sums up a, a flatmate experience for me most of all is do you know the opening scene in what we do in the shadows with by Taika Waititi. Yes, yes. That I bit where they have the fat household meeting and they're talking about not having done the dishes for over 100 years. When me and my partner watched that for the first time, we just moved out of the house share, and it was too real. Oh. We had we no we we had to turn it off. It was too <laughs> real for us. But anyway, we won't compete complaining about household neighbors and flatmates and all that because uh, we're not a begrudging people. Not at all. We nope. would never hold a grudge. God no. Vendettas. We don't know them. And we've always had really good relationships with all of our neighbours, especially the ones on the larger islands to the east. Of course. Now, with that all in mind, Lenny is providing us with a very interesting story today. She is indeed. 
So we're actually going to be touching a bit on the magic tradition. If you if you didn't gather that from what we were talking about magic and supernatural earlier, we're going to be looking a little bit at basically folk magic. Because we didn't really have that witchcraft hysteria in Ireland. Not really. It was mainly only in a few small little cases. We had Island McGee and stuff. Yes. And we have, um, oh God, what's her name? Florence Newton. Lawrence Newton, and the, the one from Kilkenny. Alice Kittler. Alice Kittler. But she's kind of the major witchcraft trial that I'm aware of. Because even, um, God, the names are all escaping me at the moment. The most faint, Bridget Cleary. Of course. They keep talking about that as Ireland's last witch trial. For one thing, it wasn't a trial. It was at Not best at witch vigilantism. And two, she wasn't a witch. They thought she'd been taken by the fairies and was a changeling. And you even get that in the Scottish witch trials. A lot of the time when the magistrates and all were interviewing them, the witches were claiming that they had these familiar spirits, but they were fairy spirits. They were Mm. communicating with the she. And it was only their their understanding of it that made them go, oh, it's demons. So uh, we'll just cross out fairy and just put in the devil. But uh, we don't really go in for the standard witchcraft thing over here. Not really. It's more what the fairies do and everything. They were big, terrifying yeah. things. And even with the witches, I mean, obviously Alice Kittler did have her few like accusations of witchcraft and stuff. Yeah. But also it was people being like, this woman's a bit horrible. <laughs> it basically kind of came down to just a, ah, they seem a bit dodgy, don't they? They're probably up to some magical stuff. Yeah, there's a similar one in my area with um, a woman called Sheila Nagira, who she was said to, I'm not sure if they ever accused her of witchcraft, but it was just another case of this woman is just like evil to the point where it might as well be supernatural. And so all the like folk stories about just how terrible she was. I'm sure most people growing up had that house in their town or in their city or whatever, where there was somebody usually of the older generation who everyone was like, ah, they're a witch, can't go near their house. Now, unusually, my house was the house that everyone thought was the witch's house when I was growing up. Oh dear. Yeah, we were known as the Adams Family House for ages. <laughs> Making me pugsley. But for years, when I'd be going around town with my mum, people would be pointing at her on the street, I say people, kids, and going, all right, witch, there's a witch. But I think we might actually get into the story because we've talked around it quite a lot now. And if we go much further, I think I'm going to start spoiling things. So we'll have a little listen. So Lenny, take us away. In the county of Mayo, there was a very small coastal town where during the summer, it became full of extreme superstition. You see, every morning people would get up and they'd light their fires. But not on that day, not on May Day. It was feared that on May Day, a charm setter, a person of great power, walked and also lived among the people. Attracting the smoke from the first fire lit in the town to light her own house, along with it, she would take the farmer's full supply of butter for the entire year. 
which as you can probably imagine, is something you definitely didn't want to happen to you. Now, Sheila Bond, she was a young widow and her husband had only died six months after they'd married. And with the husband dead and no children of her own, she seemed to be making twice as much butter as any housewife in that quiet town, which anyone who'll tell you, if they're from a quiet town themselves, it grew incredible superstitious incredibly quickly. And a few months went by. And Sheila, she'd caught the eye of a man by the name of Honest Bill. And they courted, it was for quite a long time, almost over a year. And by that time, sure Sheila, she'd long forgotten about her previous life. The misfortune she'd once had. And fell madly in love with Honest Bill. As time went on, everyone was certain, now this including Sheila herself, that they'd marry. However, one day... On a boat from the New World, the land of America, off the boat came a beautiful young girl named Emer, with hair as red as flame and smile as warm as summer. She was truly an Irish beauty. As you can probably guess, Emer and Bill soon bumped into one another, and after a short time, the two of them began to fall madly in love with one another. And poor Sheila, you're thinking, well, she was left by the wayside. Bill decided he couldn't be without Emer, and she without him. And the less he saw of Sheila, the more he saw of Emer. And sure, in the end, himself and Emer, well, they were married. The two moved in together on quite a small farm, but they were happy as could be. And strangely enough, Sheila even kept in contact with them. Bill and Emer, she grew quite a strong relationship and bond with them over the coming months. One day, Sheila arrived at Emer's home to help her churn the butter. And as the women chatted away, all of a sudden, the wooden panel of the churn for the butter snapped and Emer watched as every drop of all the creamy butter in front of her, it poured out onto the ground and how strange, she thought. Never to have happened to her before. But she'd survive, she thought to herself. And so more weeks go by. And Sheila again, she drops in, but this time for a cup of tea with Emer. And again, the two ladies sit engrossed in their chatter. And from above, six plates fly off the top shelf of the cupboard, smashing down onto the feet before them. But these were Emer's fine china. One of a kind. The most expensive item she owned, gone and destroyed. And again, the two women, they begin to clean up, picking up broken bits of clay. And at that moment, the front door swings open and Bill comes in with his face paler than the moon. One of the best heifers he had, had drowned in the river. And he didn't even know how she'd gotten out of the field or how could such a great tragedy take place. In the coming weeks, Sheila wasn't really around. She'd gone to visit distant family and both Bill and Emer noticed that there was no unusual sounds, that there was no unusual accidents or misfortunes of fine china or butter spilling out when she wasn't there. That was until she came back from her travels. As she walked up to the door, Sheila waved at Bill in a nearby field and his lovely white mare and plough. She wasn't in the door five minutes and an almighty shriek came from the field. Emer ran to Bill terrified and saw the beautiful mare collapsed under the plough. Sheila offered she'd go and get, you know, 
somebody to do a cure for the horse. But as the words left her mouth, so did the mare take her last dying breath. Now Bill and Emer still rattled, but a couple of days went by. In their small home, they heard a knock. They opened it and before them stood a woman, ragged, seeking scraps of food or a sup of milk. Now they agreed, for they were kind people, and they offered a woman the seat at the table in their home. Emer made some food. Bill began to tell the story of the woman and what had been happening to them in their home over the last few weeks, the strange occurrences, and the woman jumped up. And without a word of speech, she threw her cloak onto the fire. And from under it, the woman, she had thick blonde hair, a silken bonnet. She was the picture of health and she looked as beautiful and youthful as anything they'd ever seen. I know this is a bit of a shock, but I promise I'm here to help. There is a great sense of evil on this farm, said she, and I can rid it for you. With that, the woman began to hear steps walking up the farm and towards the door. She turned and quickly slammed it shut. From her cloak, she grabbed some herbs and she tossed them quick into the fire. Great, thick, black smoke came up the chimney. She reddened the poker beside the fire and she threw it up the chimney as quick as she could. She made the sign of the cross at the front door and they listened. Moments went by until they heard an almighty wail coming from the other side of the door. They opened it and there they saw Sheila with the poker now burned through her stomach, turning her skin charcoal black. Now, most people might want an owl witch like Sheila to die. However, Bill and Emer were truly good people and they decided, along with some of the local villagers, that Sheila shouldn't die, that they were going to nurse her back to health. And once she was healthy and fully recovered, she was given no choice by the people of that town but to up and leave. She would be forever banished from the county of Mayo, forevermore. Now it was said that until her dying day, she remained in a very small home, alone, lonely, out of sight and down, right, miserable. Bill and Emer, however, they soon began to prosper, not only on their farm, but in life, going on to have three beautiful children, going on to grow old together still in madly in love as the first day that they had met. That was a story. I very much so enjoyed that. Very enjoyable indeed. If enjoy is the right word, like this, this kind of a it's, it's a bit sick those... to say that we are enjoying a woman's abdomen being pierced by red hot poker, but it's one of those difficult things where you're like, oh, this is a really great story. I'm loving the story, but not sure if it's enjoyable. It's yeah. just feels it... weird to say that. Enjoyment might not be the right word, but I definitely. Got something. I was ripped by it. You yeah, might say. it's really interesting. I love how they really develop the characters in that mm. one. Like you get a really strong sense of Sheila, and 
what I think is always best when you have a bit of a villain. You get a bit of sympathy for her. You're not entirely... Yeah. You, you get why she's doing it. You understand it. She has motivations and stuff. It's not, ah, I'm an evil witch. Yeah, like you could... Again, not wishing to throw aspersions to the island across the way, but you could get an English version of this folktale where it's just, oh, she was this har- horrible, har- harsh witch, and then, of course, she turned out to be evil. Yeah. I think this one's a bit more subtle. This one gives her a bit more dimension. Yeah. And I just love the random old woman showing up with the solution. Always random her coming in with the solution. You just like, need it. I-, I want a random old woman to come into my life and fix everything up. Oh, that would be the dream. Honestly, I feel like random old women, they're the most capable people on this island. They really are. In fact, the only capable people on this island. Oh, yeah, they should be running the government. Well, yeah, if we just fired the rest of Dole Air and replaced them all with biddies, then we'd be grand. We'd be flying it. And we'd have so much tea whenever we went to the Doyle. Oh, it would be incredible. We'd be like Mrs. Doyle taking over. Oh, the biscuits. <laughs> but again, we're going to go back to the magic because we've got what basically what Irish witches were obsessed with, which I was biting my tongue about earlier. Butter stealing. It's butter all stealing. about the dairy. They love to magically steal butter. Like, and on one hand, we find this amusing. I used to tell it on the tour as a bit of a joke that like, obviously in Europe, your main fear of witchcraft was satanic worship, love charms going wrong, transforming people into frogs. And in Ireland, dairy produce. But if you actually unpack it, it's really important. Oh, it makes a lot of sense. It's the it's a livelihood. Like. Yeah. Like, was it, I think it was Kevin Danaher who said that Ireland was the land of milk. And there were reports of the various travel writers from the, around the 18th century who went around Europe saying that Ireland was the most obsessed with milk that they'd ever seen. So... The interfering with your milk was interfering with your food, with your diet. For years, the main thing we'd eat every single meal was potatoes, potatoes. and buttermilk. Yeah, we'd mix the two of them together to make yeah. one more appetizing. Which was actually a relatively healthy diet, especially oh. for what most people were on at the time. Lumber potatoes, despite being a monoculture and getting all the diseases and everything, yeah, yeah amazingly suited for nutrition they had literally everything you could need but that's that's how we got trapped with the monoculture of it yeah they were so perfect yeah until they betrayed us until they betrayed us so terribly what i find really interesting about this story though is the fact that the type of magic in it is stuff that people like were said to actually practice yeah it's like common i have stories because i'm from a very rural part of Tipperary. yeah all of my grandparents they have stories about like oh one neighbour was found on May Day skimming a saucer beneath the well to steal all yeah, the yeah, yeah. sustenance from the well or the milk from the cows. Yeah, because I love that. Because like, back to the May Day thing, it's because that was the time of year to do this stuff. Exactly. It, even without going into the magic or the pishogs, as we used to call spells over here, uh, if you gave just anything away from your home that day, it was thought they were giving the luck of your household for the entire year away. So you wouldn't give them a bit of your fire, you wouldn't give them a saucer of milk, you wouldn't give them a spoon of sugar. It was the one day a year we could be as selfish as we could possibly want. Yes, and that's one of the ones that my dad still keeps to this day. Really? Yeah, like my dad is tooting our own horn for my family. He's a very generous person. Uh, He was in the hospital recently and he asked, my sister who was with him 
to bring them some change in. And she was asking, why do you need change? It's not like you're going to eat anything from the vending machine because he's on a whole food diet. And he's like, oh, I'm, it's not for me. It's just there were several other people on the ward with me who wanted to be able to get stuff from the vending machine and I wanted to be able to have cash in case they needed it. So, like, a really nice guy. But on May Day, miserly bastards. Don't ask him for anything. Get away with yourself. Won't even give you a lift. Because <laughs> <laughs> the fumes will be escaping his van if I crash. But, so on that day, you had that sanctioned miserly nature. But that did mean you had to really be careful of your, your profits on that day. Otherwise, you'd be screwed for the entire year. And that meant if you were out, if you went out with with the intent to harm, that was the day to do it. Your spells were way more potent, and you've got that increased connection with the other world. So already there's more magic in the air, so to speak. It's just a perfect time to really, really get one over on your neighbors. Yeah, and this one, I love the motivation for for screwing them over. But a lot of the time, it's just really basic. I just wanted more. Oh yeah, so many of these stories are just, there's a little old woman, she's got one bony cow, but she's getting way more milk than all her neighbours, what's going on? And basically a lot of the time it comes down to, I I wanted to not starve this winter. And there's always that begrudgery, because it's either, as you say, old woman mysteriously having too much butter, and therefore getting notions about herself, needs to be cut down a peg, or it's the lovely well-to-do family in the town who are always rolling in butter and somebody gets jealous and decides to cut them down a peg of course and in this one you get that really the violent reaction of driving the red hot poker through her stomach a lot of the time it's just put the poker into the churn they get a bit burnt and then they go ah you (laughs) trying to steal our butter if it wasn't for you meddling other farmers and then they don't even banish them a lot of the time it's just, ah, you stop that, will you? I will, so. Sorry about that, Paddy. <laughs> Even in the, like, real-life cases, a lot of the time, if you found someone doing it, you would just take that secret to your grave. You'd yeah. stop whatever they were doing, you'd pray a prayer or whatever, yeah. but then you just never re- reveal to anyone who this person yeah. was. Because I think in the magic tradition over here, it's not necessarily something you were born with or born into. Exactly. It's something you could learn. Yeah. So, like, you were born with the evil eye, and you could, and if you overlooked someone, you could cause them damage, and that was seen as not really your fault because you're born with that. You can't help it. Whereas this, if you learned how to do a few pishogs, you could do them. Exactly. But yeah. I wanted to ask you about that because you are obviously from very, very rural. Very, very. The fact that I even have a phone is amazing. I didn't think electricity had even reached there yet. It only reached basically in the last few months. We still get power. Last time I was down, we had a massive power cut. Of course. So. Well, you're outside of the Greater Dublin area. We don't need to power half most of the country. It's God, no. It's fine. But that does mean that you've got a lot of traditional lore still going on in your area. We do indeed. Because I remember you telling me about one of your neighbours who went around on a horse, was it? Who had the cure? Oh, yes. So there's many, many different cures for whooping cough. And some of them were cures that my family like my grandparents would have had to have my grand my grandfather and his brothers all got whooping cough when they were young and there were different ways you could do it so one way was that if you found a man on a white horse you'd say man on the white horse what's the cure for whooping cough and whatever he said (laughs) would be the cure there was one man who would say something along the lines of oh the cure it's a drop of whiskey for myself and a little bit for the child (laughs) But other times it was a little bit more grisly. One thing was that you would take, you'd get the person's 
godparent, the godfather usually, to yeah. go out into the field to find a calf, to clip the tip of the ear off of that calf and tie it around the child's neck. Right. As it withers, the child's whooping cough will go away. I love that. There's a lot of different ones like that where it's something, you cause something to wither and that causes yeah. the sickness to diminish. It's like a sympathetic bond. That was one of the old cures for warts because you'd, yeah. you'd rub a toad onto the wart and then you'd leave it to slow, kill it and then yeah. leave it to slowly decay. Because it's all going into that sympathetic magic, which is a huge part of, I'd say, the European folk magic tradition. Yeah. Of you're, you're trying to cause an effect on something so that a harmonious, sympathetic response will happen to something else. And that's, that's the thing with the butter. Yes. That a lot of the time they put, was they put, was it the dead hand could increase the churning? Oh, the yes. Something about a dead man's hand. I forget exactly what I think it you did. use the it dead man's hand to churn, churn it the butter, which I'm not sure how that quite fits in. That seems to be more taboo break, just taboo breaking and being a magical artifact increasing the output. Possibly. There, maybe there was, was there something about the dead man's hand coming from like a criminal or something in particular? That could well have been it. But then again, that could be that justification thing as well. Of, yeah. Any old hand will do, but to be a good Christian soul, you better only take it from a thief or a murderer. Exactly. <laughs> but I think that when you really look at the magic tradition in Ireland, it's very different from the more formalised idea of magic that we have from pop culture these days. Definitely. It's not even... It's even difficult to call it like magic it's yeah. more just this is what you do yeah it's like it's home it's not like a science but it's kind of along that lines it's just this is the natural law is if you clip some ears off of the calf it'll help your child with their whooping cough it's not like yeah. you don't think of it as casting a spell no and i think that's an important thing for a very catholic country where exactly. you've got express commands that you don't use magic so oh it's not magic it's just pish hoax yeah it's a totally charms. different it's, thing yeah and you often get this idea, again, kind of from pop culture, of this dichotomy between, say, Christian, right, good, and magic, bad, evil. And you don't get that over here at all. You don't at all. And you don't really get that in most actual magic traditions, really. Because it's not like that formalised spellcraft that, like, uh, oh, what's his name? The enemy of WB-8, Alistair oh, Crowley. Alistair Crowley, yeah. Nor is it even the type of witchcraft that people were accused of which was satanic there's no invocation of satan here there's no. not not even an appeal to like the fairies or anything just, it's just we do this this happens yeah just an appeal to the lactids because <laughs> my the other variation of this story is the the hair one where you've got the old witch able to transform into a hare yes. who's then sneaking and stealing the milk from the source directly yeah yeah because obviously, churning butter, it did go wrong a lot of the time. Mm. Especially when you didn't understand the, the exact heat conditions. You didn't know and, the science of it. And if you had the wrong bacteria in your churn, it wouldn't work. And when you don't have that scientific knowledge, and I think this goes for a lot of the folk beliefs, you need some explanation. Our minds want an explanation for why something is happening. We're not satisfied with just, it happened, deal with it. So you create these incredibly complex worldviews and beliefs around it. Well, actually, the butter isn't churning because we didn't spread butter on the top of it. We didn't sprinkle salt around the butter churn to make sure the fairies couldn't interfere. And now one of our neighbours has gotten annoyed at us, so we've got to jam the red hot poker into it to stop them. Like When you don't know the exact mechanics of something, you're going to yeah. latch on to, you'll be like, oh, 
I put salt around it last time and it worked, so we need to do salt from now on. But we've each got a ritual around the college printer. Of course, yeah, we do. We've each got a ritual about getting the Wi-Fi to work properly. We all think we're a lot more rational these days, but those irrational beliefs are still a huge part of our day-to-day living Oh, they fully are. And I think with that in mind, we might call it there. We might be at the end of what we can squeeze from the story. I think so. Again, excellent story. Amazing Thanks story. Thanks so much for thank that, Thank you, Lenny. Lenny. And thank you all for listening. We'll be back to you again next month. Until then, I've been Misha. I've been Brendan. And we'll talk to you soon. Slán. Slán. Thank you for joining us for another episode of the National Leprechaun Museum's Talking Stories podcast. Remember, the best way to support us is by liking, subscribing, and sharing with a friend.